The Jewish Frame, Episode 1, Keeping the Faith. Okay. Hello. Hello. Welcome to The Jewish Frame, a Jewish movie podcast. Now, is it a Jewish podcast about movies, or is it a podcast about Jewish movies? Yet to be determined. Yet to be determined. I think probably a little bit of both. I am Ben Shin. I'm here with Rabbi Dan Ain, Senior Rabbi of Congregation Beth Shalom. And we both love movies. And that's pretty much it. That's, that's pretty, pretty much it. That's why we're here. We want to talk about Judaism. We want to talk about movies. We love referencing film. And we wanted to have an opportunity to get together and talk about what makes a Jewish film Jewish. Um, what are the good ones? And perhaps uh, gain some attention onto some overlooked films that might be worth uh, taking a new uh, gander at, perhaps. Right. Speaking of overlooked. Yes. The first one. Well, as this is episode one, yes, we're starting very modestly. Yes, very modestly. With a, a very modest entry, I think, into, in, the into the annals of Jewish film with a little movie called Keeping the Faith. Indeed. A uh, 2000 movie uh, starring and directed by Ed Norton. Ed Norton's debut as a director. He didn't get to do it again for another, <laughs> for another I think, 17 years. Uh, at least, um, I think the only other movie he's directed has been... Not a super interestingly directed movie. Well, no, we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't call this uh, an auteur-type <laughs> turn, you know? No, quite the opposite. You quite the opposite. Right. No. Um, but clearly, he wanted to try his hand at it, and I guess... did he also do that? Didn't he also do a, a Woody Allen musical? Ed Norton, wasn't he also? Was he in a, he was, he's been in at least, I think, one Woody Allen. Yeah, and I think it was a musical comedy, too. So, I mean, he obviously likes... I mean, this is such a rom-com movie. When you think about it, after Fight Club and American History X, oh, Ed Norton is now directing a movie. Yeah, well, I want to get into and rom-coms. And it's this one. Okay. I got a whole... Oh, well, yeah. I got a whole bit about rom-coms, which, which we can get to. But um, So, it's, it's Ed Norton. It's Ben Stiller. It's Anne Bancroft. It's Eli Wallach. It's Ron Rifkin. It's Milos Forman in, in an acting role. And, of course, Jenna Elfman. I mean, this is a, this is a pretty good cast. It's ridiculous, guys. Right? Pretty kind of ridiculous. And not used, I think, always particularly well. We'll get, we'll get to that, I'm sure. But let's dive in. Let's just kind of walk through the movie. If folks haven't seen it, you can run out and see it. It's on HBO Max right now. So it's easily available. I can tell you, if anyone's listening who went to rabbinical school, they've already seen this movie. You think so? Oh, yes. This is big? Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, I started rabbinical school in the summer of 2002. So um, not too long after this movie initially came out. So did you see it, before we dive in, did you see it before or after you were or knew you were going to be a rabbi? I don't think I saw this movie before I was in rabbinical school. Okay. I don't think there was any reason for me to go see this movie. Before. Well, people did. People did. Well, that made money, right? It made money. I think it what cost... Was the gross? It, um, gross was... I think it doubled its budget worldwide. Um, so I think it was around... cost around $30 million when you could still make movies for $30 million and get them made. And it made, I think, something like 60 worldwide. Um, I think it made something like $10 million domestically. So, you know, I mean, but that was what you would expect a rom-com to do. They weren't blockbusters, you know. These are movies that were made by, you know, for around 
30 million bucks, right? And if they made 40, 50, 60, that I think was a successful film. So people saw it. I just didn't know who the audience was for this movie, other than rabbinical students. I don't know. That I, was, that was, and I have a lot to, and we'll share about the actual experience of being a rabbinical student and trying to date as we move along here. So take us through the film. All right, I'll take you through the film. All right, so uh, opens, shots of Manhattan, shades of the film Manhattan is even sort of like a jazzy number playing. It's, it's pretty much ripped off from, from Woody Allen's Manhattan, the, the sort of opening and credit sequence. And then it starts with this framing sort of device where our, one of our heroes, Ed Norton, is drunk in a bar and spilling his guts to the bartender. Can I stop you? I don't know. Please, no. So I'll, I'll just interrupt. Uh, it seemed to me that this whole movie, that was the pitch. I felt like when we opened on Ed Norton in the bar, pouring his soul out to the bartender, I felt like I was in the pitch meeting where get it and a rabbi and a priest walk into a bar. Like the whole thing is a joke stretched out for two hours and ten minutes to a certain extent. That was my impression at the top. But go on. A little bit. So he's drunk. He's spilling his guts to the bartender. And then he tells a story about how when they were kids, they were growing up, and there were two of them, Jake and... Anna Banana. Anna and... Brian. Brian, right. Uh, and they were, you know, inseparable, which already is... I, didn't, I don't know anybody who went there. Twelve, uh, um, you know, those... Well, you're going to get me talking about a Mary Sue pretty soon, because... Uh, are you familiar with that concept of a Mary Sue? I, I wasn't. You did mention this to me before. So you've seen before. one of the main complaints about... Star Wars Episode Seven and the Ray character was this idea that they made Ray a Mary Sue, which is a female character with some sort of male idealization with no flaws. Oh yeah, uh, and this Jenna Elfman character who's like the dorky boy's best friend who's very attractive and a tomboy and who loves baseball. Yeah. It, it was just a little much. Yeah, the almost the and it actually flashes back and it shows these kids and it's all very gauzy and not great. I mean, I wish they had. If you were looking for places to cut, I, I would have just I would just cut all that. You know, we knew each other when we were kids and she moved away. End of story. Let's it didn't, that doesn't add much. It doesn't add really anything. So um, then you find out that Jake becomes a rabbi, Brian becomes uh, a Catholic priest, and. They are like super priest and super rabbi. It shows them the sort of a, a sort of mini, not even montage, but sort of like a, a, a back and forth of scenes with the rabbi in front of his congregation and the priest in front of his congregation. And it's like they start out. Well, first they go to school. So you skip the schooling, which the school. Oh, right. Yeah. They do the I remember being in school, which I was in rabbinical school for six years, and I remember it's like a flash of a montage. <laughs> and so it's like very quickly. You just see you just Ben Stiller. And there's a huge book that, that uh, Ed Norton has that's plopped on the stand. Ben Stiller is arguing, yeah. standing up. And, that, and then they both get jobs, and you mm -hmm. show them starting off their jobs. First they're preaching and no one's there, and then they're packed. And they're so full, right? Yes, they're packed to packed. <laughs> Right? Which also is, is ridiculous. Is sort of <laughs> silly. Okay, 
But then, um, so they're successful sort of junior priest and junior rabbi. With the leather jackets, walking down the street to yeah. Santana. Yes, they're like super cool, right? The God Squad. Yes, that's right. People call them, right? Ben Stiller is the junior rabbi to Eli Wallach, who's the senior rabbi in that congregation. And Brian is the junior priest. I don't know how it's not that clear. works. not clear. But there's another priest at that church who is Milos Foreman. We'll come back to him. And that's sort of the setup. And then they're playing basketball because apparently in any New York movie <laughs> with guys who are friends, you need to have a scene of them playing well, look, street ball. We could probably, look, a few positives about the movie is the chemistry is good between Ben and Ed. It's not bad. It's not bad at all. It's not bad at all. They do seem to be enjoying each other's company. That's true. There's, there's, <laughs> you're giving me that. There's areas where there is less good, good chemistry. We'll get to that. No, but yeah. no, the chemistry, you're right. Between them is... It's pretty solid. It's pretty, pretty solid. And, you know, I... As you believe them as guys who I, I, are friends. Except for the fact that Ben Stiller does no rabbinic work the entire movie. He doesn't seem to have any work to do. Yeah. And as Jenna Elfman is constantly busy with her job, he's just a tagger on who doesn't seem to have any... Bad he doesn't seem to do much. At all. At all. <laughs> Which cracks me up uh, a lot. But where do, where, so what do you want to go to? Okay, so, well, I want to really ask the question right now. Sir. Is he a good rabbi in this movie? He is set no. as the most amazing rabbi anybody has ever he's seen. He's not a good rabbi. No, he's not. No, he's not a good rabbi. Well, I mean, I was we I watched this with my wife the other night, and she was so, uh, she found the adoration of the rabbi and everybody trying to set the rabbi up. Uh, to right, be let's move on. Let's get particularly hilarious. So, is he a good rabbi? Uh, no, but let's talk about why. Uh, why along, he's not along, a good rabbi? along the way. Okay, we'll talk about why, but we'll we'll put a pin in that okay. for now. You lead me. Is he a great rabbi? No. The answer is no. We'll find out. No. Okay. So. And the sermon at the end is not great. Well, it's a. Let's just say it's a. Two-minute Kol Nidre sermon. Which, all, all about him. By the I way, which nobody her. there is going to care about. Okay. By the way, let me tell you about my relationship with my girlfriend. You've come here to fast, and I'm going to talk to you and bore you with my relationship with my girlfriend. Yeah, I can just really imagine work. the audience listening. It doesn't to that. really work. Okay, no. so uh, getting back to the movie, so they are they're they're hanging out, and then they say, Brian says, "Oh, I heard from Anna, and she's coming to town." Anna Riley. Anna Riley, who's been in California this whole time since they were 12 years old, and now gives him a call. She's in New York. I guess he, these two guys, the only people that she knows in <laughs> oh, New York City. We're going to get into that. Yeah, and she gives him a call and says, I'm coming and I want to see her. So they meet her, both of them, at the airport. They have no work. And she is Janet Elfman, right? She's like, I didn't really know anything about her. Um, Darman Greg. Right, she was Darman Greg. I never watched, I never watched that either. show. I think I might have seen a bit of one episode. It you know, looked like a perfectly fine sitcom, but she's charming and beautiful and cute and really i think i wonder over. what happened to jenna i, I saw this movie and I go, what happened to yeah jenna? she comes over really well absolutely why wasn't she like meg ryan i'm just sorry it wasn't a better part for her anyway so uh, she's jenna elfman and they both uh, you can kind of tell they both sort of fall in love with her as soon as she steps off the plane um because she looks so fabulous and she's like hey guys and she it's like pick right up right as from when they were 12 years old. Because that always happens that always with those happens. girlfriends you haven't seen since you were 12. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anybody that I could bump into and talk to that I knew when I was 12 years old um, and not have it be a little awkward for at least a little while. But that doesn't seem to be a problem. So, um, so she's back. And meanwhile, Jake is now back in synagogue where, I mean, getting just a, was he a good rabbi? His role in his shul seems to be like a tumbler. You know that? That, that was like the guys in the Catskills, right? Who, who were like the MCs and they lead the dances and they're telling jokes and they're, you know. That, that's accurate. By the way, so well, they call it tumbler. My confusion. No, no, the tumbler. That's right. But yeah. oh, but that's accurate for. I mean, I was a rabbi in Manhattan for a decade, and uh, I I was a party producer. I mean, most of my work was very similar. Ben Stiller's like there's that one scene in which he and Ed Norton go to this uh, go to that space where they're going to put up the interfaith. Uh, club we can talk we can talk about that we can talk about that but uh that was my job my job was going finding abandoned spaces and putting up different pop-up religious events and sort of trying to come up with uh different venues and different ways to make judaism appealing so in that sense yeah i mean he was doing his job that is what an assistant rabbi, a junior rabbi, would want to do. You'd want him to wear a leather jacket and be cool and appeal to the kids. The one scene where he's like, just suck, where he's talking to the bar mitzvah yes. kid. You just suck and love that sucking. Boy, I wish it was that easy to work with a bar mitzvah kid from now and again. But, you know, I thought that was still cute. I'm more forgiving maybe than I should be of this movie. Um, so that's me. Go on. Meanwhile, so we see in services... And they're singing in Kelahenu. Yes. And he invites in this gospel. Who would ever do such a thing? Who would ever do such a thing, right? Everyone loves it. And everybody on the board is furious about it. Right? Um, Pretty accurate. Maybe that's it. <laughs> this movie also does seem to take for granted that people who are watching it are familiar with not only elements of Jewish life and ritual, but also like synagogue politics. And it's sort of taken for granted. I, I mean, I give the movie credit for that, right? There's not like an exposition about that stuff. They don't try and explain it to the non-Jewish audience. So I kind of appreciate that, right? It's they just show it. That's a compliment. You know, yeah, I think I, might, I like that about this movie. I, we got that on the Jewish side, but as you mentioned, with Milos Forman and Brian, I don't understand their dynamic at all in that sense. Well, okay, so I think it's notable to say this was movie was written by this guy, Stuart Bloomberg. That's right. Not a Catholic. Well, see, that was the one area. This movie is decidedly Catholic, though. It's directed by Ed Norton. Yes. And in a lot He's of... not Catholic, but, by the way. I mean, Episcopalian. Close. But but he does not come from a Catholic background. But anyway, it's it does seem to lean more into well, I don't know. Is it is I don't know if it's even handed in terms of which side it presents more or it seems to me, but maybe that's just because of me as the viewer, it seemed to me more invested in the Jewish congregation than in the in the church and what's going on there. But equally disrespectful, equally disrespectful to sort of the vows or commitments that the rabbis 
or the priest's take. Like, well, we'll definitely get to that. Okay. Well, hold on. We're, we're definitely going to okay. get to that. So the board is furious about the whole gospel choir. But meanwhile, he comes out of the sanctuary into a space that's not clear what this space is. Like, there are all these people hanging around and being like, oh, that was wonderful. Oh. It's not like a, a foyer. It's not, there's no food there. It's not quite a kiddish. It's not a kiddish. There's no food there. It's like they're waiting outside of the theater to tell him how wonderful it's he some, did. Yes, it's like, it's, it's as if it were a theater lobby. That's right. But you don't usually have that in a synagogue. So that was a little weird. Well, they should have had some herring there. Would have gone have, better. It would have made more sense if you saw people hovering over a buffet or something. But everybody's pushing their daughter on him, right? Like, oh, you have to meet my daughter. And everyone's trying to fix him up. And... Especially this woman, very elegant-looking older lady with her daughter, who is Rachel Rose. She looks like a movie star, and she plays this, um, you know, on tell. What, what would be the best catch for a rabbi? A television news reporter, who you know, yeah. famous, well, you know, respected television news reporter. Exactly, and she's like, oh yes, we should definitely go out, you know. Well, so that was a problem. Then and there is no way Rachel Rose would be interested in Rabbi Shram. I speak from experience here. That's just not. That's not going to happen. So when we, when I was in rabbinical school, we, we lived on the Upper West Side of this neighborhood, and one of my friends, we were singles, so we'd go out, and he referred to letting people know what we did as dropping the R-bomb. Because whenever we told anybody we were a rabbi, a rabbinical student, the bars cleared. All of the women or men fled the scene because they wanted to have nothing to do with Whereas in this movie, it's the opposite. Which is weird. Being a rabbi or a priest is like a superpower. Right? I mean, we'll come to it, yes. you know, whenever he, whenever Brian shows the collar, right? It's like he's, he's ripping open his shirt and he's got a big S underneath. It's, it's a little strange. I don't think it works that way. Um, maybe. I, I don't know. Anyway, so um, they, uh, he meets her and then uh, they go out at some point. There's a date and it's like a double date. Right, so he's going to go out with with with. Oh, that made no sense. Sorry, you have to talk uh, about a nightmare date. So yeah, so as a illustration of how horrible it is having people throw their daughters at you, he's set up on this date with this woman in his congregation, played by Lisa Edelstein. Yeah, and she is a monster. I didn't see any way I know to describe her. She is a fitness freak. Fitness freak. She asks him to punch her in the stomach. It's so weird. And the scene where he's trying to get in the cab and she won't oh, let him get in the cab. Oh, and they go out to dinner and she, like, beats a, a panhandler. Oh, get out of here. You just use it for uh, for alcohol. Yeah, she, like, then beats oh, with the her worst. purse. The worst Jewish stereotypes. And, but also just beyond stereotypes. She's, a stereotype at least is recognizable. Right? I was like, who, who is this person? What human being that I've anybody has ever met behaves like this? It's just such a strange amalgam of weird, negative character traits. Was well, like, well, the film allowed to slip into slapstick? I mean, can you yes, argue that? It does. It does, but it's cruel. It's not. I mean, you know, when he punches her in the stomach and she falls down and she's like oh I'm okay I mean I guess that could be funny, funny maybe but 
the character is again so and she is acting the hell out of it she is doing her level best to sell this character and to embody it with as much humanity as she can but it's a losing battle because everything that she's made to do and everything that she's made to say is just bizarre and repulsive so yeah this was probably my least favorite well, scene uh, for in good reason. the film I mean, it's misogynistic it's, yeah and then she get they got back to her place and she's literally dragging him trying to drag him into the building so she can go upstairs and have sex with him right i mean it's so odd and again who has ever behaved this way right like one woman that anybody has ever met has has ever really behaved this way and he's he's doing everything he's doing everything doing everything short of like beating her over the head it's so odd it's so odd and there are many different ways you could have gone with him dating that wouldn't have led to such a nasty character and it's supposed to be flattering to him i guess but it's he stinks it's not he stinks he kind of stinks i don't understand why he can't carry on a conversation with people isn't he a rabbi why does he need help? Why does he need Ed Norton and Jenna Alfred to come along so he can have a conversation with Ed Norton? There, there, with Rachel Rose, so there are a few times in this movie where it's like he's unable to have chit-chat with people. He's t- But like he's a rabbi. That's what he should be. He should be able to talk to anybody in any circumstance. Right. Yes. And meanwhile, we have Brian. He's one of my best rabbi. Maybe my favorite scene in the movie, which is the scene with Brian and Anna on the bridge in Central Park. I mean, so cliched, right? Couple on a bridge in Central Park. <laughs> we'll overlook that. This is the most erotically charged scene, I think, in the movie. And it's him talking about, no, I don't have sex. And I don't miss it. And it's not a problem for me. And he is clearly amazingly turned on. And so is she. And it's a really good scene. It's the only scene in the movie that actually has subtext. I mean, it's a fairly transparent subtext, but it's something. And they do a really nice job. And you didn't like the chemistry between Ben Stiller and Okay, well, let's... (laughs) There is zero (laughs) chemistry. Well, because after the date, what happens is... And, and he shows up at the house. He, he he's, shows up. He's at turned her. on. He's turned on, and he. Well, he says goodnight to Rachel Rose, and she invites him up, and he says, "No, I shouldn't." And he ends up, yeah, knocking. It on wasn't me. the most inviting welcome up. It was. I have to leave for Afghanistan. No, I got the feeling morning. that she, again, because we have to flatter Ben Stiller's character, right? It's it's inconceivable that a woman wouldn't want him to come upstairs. So no, I think she's sincere that she. Uh, that she really does want him to. Well, that brings me to the question. What are Ben Stiller's flaws in this movie? Character flaws. Well, he doesn't have any. Nobody does. I mean, that's why it's sort of n- 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 not so interesting. You know, Brian drinks a lot, I guess you could say. Brian's a drinker. No, you can tell he's never drunk before in his life. <laughs> right? That he's well, he makes an Irish joke at one point. He does. Drinking. You can tell he's not. You know, if he did, then he would be holding his liquor. He shows up, he has a couple of drinks, and he's like on the floor. Right. So, oh, oh, oh. When he shows up at his shul and berates him in front of his congregants, yes. he shows up drunk at yes. the shul yes. and he yells at him in front of his congregants. As a rabbi, there is no way 
that that would ever happen if that friend of yours is going to show up and berate you in front of your congregation i mean that would be the end of any relate i mean that's beyond for for someone uh, you would never walk in a rabbi would never walk into another rabbi's congregation trying to make a fool but you get the sense in this movie somehow the congregation is in on the joke all the way through well, they're watching the whole fight from the corner, from the Yeah, door. yeah, but you get the sense, like, nobody's really alarmed. Everyone just thinks it's sort of juicy and interesting. Nobody's really freaked out. And then when they're fighting in the next room, they're all, like, uh, with their ears against the door. Like, just, ooh, what's going on there, right? It's, you know, it's goofy. I, you know, it's okay. It's, yeah. it's a comedy. So Ben Stiller shows up at Jenna Elfman's uh, door, and... They just jump into bed together. That's right. Pretty much right away. That's right. And they do have zero chemistry. <laughs> and it's baffling because Jenna Elfman is so attractive on screen and everybody else in the movie is attracted to her. You as an audience member are attracted to her. And Ben Stiller doesn't seem to be able to muster up any genuine attraction to this woman who he's supposed to be really into and is sleeping with in the film. However, Ed Norton does some nice things here. I respect him a little bit as a director. He makes some nice choices to work around the lack of chemistry <laughs> between Ben Stiller and Jenna Elfman in this film. During that sex scene, or actually, I mean, I guess you don't, you don't really see it, right? I mean, there's nothing graphic they jump into bed together and then it's that thing of oh and now it's over and they're in the afterglow and at that moment there's a, a shot of just their hands touching each other and and touching each other's bodies so that you don't have to see ben stiller's face so it communicates intimacy without ben stiller actually having is that an issue for ben stiller and his other roles i mean he doesn't, I mean, I don't think he really comes across well as a romantic lead, ever, really. I mean, he hasn't done it that, I mean, something about Mary, but that movie's not really a rom-com in the classic sense. Every time I think of Ben Stiller as a romantic uh, partner, I think of the line from Ethan Hawke, uh, there is no secret handshake. There's an IQ prerequisite. But there's no secret handshake from Reality Bites when Ben Stiller comes uh, to pick up Winona Ryder and Ethan Hawke is, and he's the biggest dweeb on the planet, and Ethan Hawke is playing the cool guy, uh, the cool bad guy. Yeah, there's no chemistry at all between no. Jenna Elfman. Uh, and I actually... And there's another... I don't know what she sees in him. Who knows? You don't even have to take that for granted. I mean, the only thing that you could possibly imagine here is that she is so lonely and that she knows nobody, that she has no friends somehow. It would right? be, be hard for Jenna Elfman to find friends, I'm sure. Yeah, but she's this high-powered businesswoman. Always know, working. Always working. She has her cell phone in her holster. Right, which in 2000, you were a little weird. If you were, <laughs> yes, now that's part for the course. Yeah, if you were on your phone all the time, you were a little weird. But yes, so she's just so lonely and doesn't know anybody. And so, and also bounces essentially from Brian to Jake. I mean, she's clearly into Brian. There is no question 
that she is really into him and all his talk of of him enjoying celibacy doesn't necessarily make a difference now maybe she realizes okay that that can't possibly happen so then she bounces right off him to Ben Stiller given half a chance it's such a poorly written character it's impossible to understand what she's thinking but it's okay because she does do something with it I mean she does come across right I think oh she's alive so they're together and they decide they're not going to tell Brian they're going to keep it a secret from him it's not exactly clear why why and then there is a romantic there's a romantic montage there is a montage and there's music and it's it's her hanging out with hit with Ben Stiller and then it's her hanging out with Brian and and I guess and them hanging out together and it's sort of the right post hookup romantic montage that you're going to see in every romantic comedy and then they go to the movies together never rabbi would never show up at a movie with his non-jewish girlfriend at the lincoln square on 68th and broadway that yeah that'd be the last place you would go with a non-jewish and date. this is another moment <laughs> they, not speaking from experience right where they kiss but they kiss behind a pillar that's right you said so, did you yes, notice I that did. I did. and i was like how smart because you don't buy it when you see Ben Stiller kissing Jenna Elfman. So let's have them kiss just slightly out of the shot. And then we will, you know, fill in the fact that, oh, these two people are really into each other because Ben Stiller can communicate that. So like I said, Ed Norton actually does, I think, some smart things to work around what is clearly the weakest element of this movie that the romantic couple just doesn't work really at all. You wonder how Stiller got attached to this movie. Um, if it's a Bloomberg-Norton affair. He was pretty big. Okay, so I'm going to get into it right now. We, given that we, I think, both think that Ben Stiller is not the best person for this role. Well, he doesn't make you like rabbis. Who else? Okay. I, I thought about this a lot. Who else could you cast? As a rabbi? As a rabbi. <laughs> Well, uh, well, you couldn't in 2000. Could you cast Brad Pitt? Oh, yes, you could actually. Because the reason I think Ned Norton got this film, this is coming off a of Fight Club. Yeah. So he had a lot of juice. Yes, and I, then I guess they were like, sure, you want to direct a little rom-com, go, go for it. But no, I don't think Brad Pitt would be the right choice. Well, for you know, I just think rabbis. All right, so, uh, so what do you, you give one and then I'll think of one. Well, first I was, was thinking, could you cast a non-Jew in this role? So let's say you you could cast a non-Jew. I mean, what if you cast Ethan well, Hawke in that role? Well, what if you cast Ethan Hawke is the best actor. John Cusack in that role. I don't know that he and Jenna Elfman go together particularly well. I don't know. No, I, found, I, I like one Ethan Hawke. I like Ethan Hawke because Ethan Hawke can play the depth that one would need. Um, that Ben Stiller shows no interest in the depth of his position at all, no. whatsoever. No interest in the. I don't know, the religious, the familial, the theological ramifications of his relationship, how he treats other women, just doesn't occur to him at any point. Um, I don't think Ethan Hawke could play that role so blindly. There was a Jewish actor that I thought of who actually had done, by that time, two romantic comedies, one with Jennifer Aniston, one with Reese Witherspoon. Oh, Paul Rudd. Wow. 
Have you seen either of those movies? Uh, the Object of My Affection. That one did okay. And um, Reese Witherspoon was with Paul Rudd in... Uh, There's a movie called Overnight Delivery. Oh, no. I had never heard of it. But it's there on IMDb. But yeah, so yeah, my professor at Brandeis wrote the novel that the object of my fiction oh, really? is based on, Stephen McCauley. I had the poster of the movie on my wall. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was into hipster ironic stuff before hipster ironic, and Stephen McCauley um, was a really great teacher, and he was my creative writing instructor at Brandeis, and uh, that was during the time that they were filming the movie, The Object of My Fiction. Yeah, I, did that movie do well? And by the way, he plays gay there. Oh, does he? That's the whole movie. Oh, I, I haven't seen Yeah. It. Okay. But Paul Rudd, actually, same age as Ed Norton, which Ben Stiller's not. Yeah, right. But ben Stiller's four years older, actually. Um, he's actually barely a Gen Xer. I don't know if he qualifies. He's born in 1965. But Paul Rudd, yeah, right age... Jewish, rom-com experience. You could more understand having a, him having to beat off women with a stick than Zoolander. Ben Stiller. But I think he just wasn't at the point of his career where Ed Norton would have been, this is the guy I want. No, the whole this thing about Mary thing, it's just too powerful for Hollywood to turn down. Well, I think Ben Stiller was just your go-to That's right. guy. Just, who else would you go to? Exactly. Yeah, which is a shame because but you, but really I don't know if Paul Rudd would have saved this movie. No, no. He wouldn't probably have saved the movie, but it... He would have added more depth to the character. It could have Rabbi. been a real romantic comedy. It could have. Maybe not a great one, but it could have been a real romantic comedy with a couple at its center that you actually cared about being together as a couple. A little bit. This, whereas Ben Stiller and Janet Elwood... Well, I mean, let me ask you. After the movie ends, six months later, they're not still together, right? There's no question about that. They've broken (laughs) up. I mean, that's obvious. You kind of assume that's the deal. If you were to think about it, which you don't. Anyway, so getting back to the movie. Because I think we're only like halfway through this film. It's so much longer than it needs to be. So so they're together and they're keeping it secret. Um, Oh, we have to talk about the Ken Young scene. They they are putting together this. What do they call it? Uh, well, they have to. It's a club. It's a. It's a club. It's a interfaith uh, club. Senior center karaoke right. lounge. It doesn't make any sense. Well, as someone who's put together projects very similar to this, it, it it's about as it's about as sensical as some of the programs okay. that I put together. And yes, you definitely need to go out and buy a sound system in order for karaoke. Which is what they do. So yes. you you imagine they are in some stereo audio store on the lower side right and there is a chinese salesman played by ken leung um who probably best known for what survivor um he's lost he's in no not not survivor lost i'm sorry i get that those shows the island he was in the sopranos he's a good actor he's really good he shows up with this ludicrous chinese accent and is just so goofy, but funny. I mean, he's funny because he's a good actor. He's, he's able to, I think, sort of make it funny, but he's this goofy 
You're supposed to imagine he's this fresh you off the boat. You can't even write that scene in 2021. You couldn't even put it on paper. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. And then, when they start talking about the price, oh, yeah. he loses the accent. And is like, oh, okay, look, this is the price, and because you like you, I like you guys. This is what I'm gonna give you the. And I think you're supposed to find it subverting of the stereotype, right? I think that's the move that is trying to be made here. Like, oh, see, we're I'm not we're not really racist. We recognize that this was a stereotype, and this guy is actually more than that stereotype but it's so and there's this whole thing running through this movie of the whole kind of new york thing right i mean there's a whole thing about this movie of being in love with new york and they talk about how wonderful new york city is and part of that seems to be oh look at all these wacky interesting people in new york and part of what makes them wacky and interesting is that they're from places other than America, right? That it's it's this immigrant paradise. And what makes it a paradise is that people can have those identities and then they can shed them and they can be mixed. The bartender is what? Like this Arab, oh, yes. Irish, right? Punjab. Punjab. Not yeah. Arab. He's Indian. Yeah. But you don't know. It doesn't matter. It's such yes. a, it doesn't matter. His brother-in-law's Jewish. Yes, exactly. His brother-in-law's Jewish. It's all a setup for a punchline. That's it's right. It's all set up for a punchline. And you're supposed to find that charming and wacky. And it doesn't really work, right? Well, there is a sense that the old... Uh, the old separations, the old ways are antiquated and we should move on. Priests should be able to have sex and rabbis should be able to marry non-Jewish people. And to think any other way is to minimize the power of love. Okay, we're going to get to that. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> what I'm saying is you can have, you can make a joke of the stereotype or you can treat these people as complex human beings but you can't do both well that's right i think that you that's been the issue we've been having this that's the issue we're having this whole conversation is we don't know if it's a slapstick comedy or if it's actually going for depth of emotion so if it's a slapstick comedy then ben stiller's the right character it's a right romantic comedy and i do want to say a word here now for elmer bernstein another massive talent who somehow is involved with this film. You know, Elmer Bernstein composed the score. He did The Magnificent Seven. He did The Great Escape, which has probably one of the greatest cinematic musical themes ever. He's a, you know, he's, he's up there, I would say top five, certainly 10 movie composers of all time. And he's the composer on this film. He was dead four years later. And I think actually his involvement is responsible for this thing feeling like a romantic comedy at all. This is my theory. Because I was like, how does this even begin to work? And I actually watched it again and I paid attention to the music. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. It's sort of a, it's sort of a light jazzy Kind of score. Reminded me of You've Got Mail. 
That's that was sort of the vibe I had. Remember, you've got men yeah. where they all hang out at that dessert place on yeah. the Upper West Side. Yeah, it sounds like a romantic comedy. You know, the background sounds like a romantic comedy and sounds like you should be just sort of, you know, having fun and it's all very light. And and I think that goes... And that's what clearly what they're going for. And the music sort of smooths that over and makes it sort of kind of work sometimes. But the movie's watchable. That's it's one of the things I think... Watchable! Well, there are some really... There are some good... Part. So we do get a scene, just so we can get through this darn thing. Yeah, yeah, the sure. movie does... There's so many forever. scenes. There's so much stuff. And so it really loses I, it's, hard, it's hard to stay through the end. So there's a scene... I fell asleep. Oh, they go, so I think the next major thing that happens is that they, Jake and Anna go to this party. Right? And she oh, says... Boat Basin. At boat, right, the Boat Basin. And it's a work party... And it's all her work friends and colleagues and whatever, and they all think she's wonderful. And he takes her aside, and he says, oh, these people think you're wonderful. And she says, yeah. And he says, you should be running the place. And she says, well, actually, they've asked me to run a piece of the company, but I've decided not to do it because I want to stay here with you. And he says, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. He doesn't say that, but basically he says, oh, I don't think that's a good idea because this thing is just like a fake. It's a, it's, yeah. We're friends with benefits. Yeah, this isn't a real thing. We, you know, we knew that. And she's like, oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I was, you know, it was just a thought and forget about it. And then she goes and has dinner at Jake's mother's place. His mother played by Anne Bancroft with nothing to do with this film. <laughs> I mean, she does have some real scenes, but meh, she's, um, I think she's fine. She's a Jewish mother trying to get her son married. She's That's fine. Anne Bancroft, not Jewish. Um, but she's able to... She plays the role... Just fine. Just fine, but it didn't have to be Anne Bancroft. Um, you actually probably could have found people who would do this role better than her, frankly. But she's always nice to see. So uh, she's at dinner in their house, and then after dinner, the she and the mother are alone together, and she spills the situation... And cries on the mother's shoulder. And uh, then, I guess later, she tells Brian and goes and cries on his shoulder. And he says, I'm in love with you, basically. And she says, oh, well, but I'm in love with Jake. And he's crestfallen. And then we have the scene with him and Milos Forman, I think. This is another good scene. When Ed Norton is put in a scene with another actor of anywhere close to his caliber, you get a good scene. And Milos Forman is not an actor, but he's a great director, right? He understands a scene. And there's just this conversation between the two of them about Brian saying, I think I... I'm having a crisis of faith. I fell for this woman, and if she had accepted me, I might have. I would have gone and you know, let all this priest stuff go hang. And Milos Forman tells this nice story about you know how he's fallen in love, and it happens every now and again. And every time it happens, you just 
you know, you're challenged and you have to meet each challenge that comes and it's nothing special. But no really Jewish nice corollary to that scene, by the way, in the entire movie. There is no Jewish corollary to that scene. No. Now, maybe there was. Eli Wallach is... Is he looks, in it at all? Is he even in the movie? He's not looking good. <laughs> I mean, whatever the three days, <laughs> if even he showed up to the set, he was not... <laughs> He was not having a good week, right? <laughs> he doesn't look good. He's looking very old and, and frail. And, there's no role there. And there's no role there. And he's just, I mean, not even walking through it, frankly. Right? Which is a shame. I mean, it's, it's a shame to see really great actors not used well. And, yeah, he's got nothing to do. And he doesn't do much with what he does have, really. Um, but I think there's, you know, at that point in his life, I don't think there was that much more juice in the lemon, so to speak. But yeah, there is no corollary to that scene. Because you wouldn't want Ben Stiller playing that with somebody because Ben Stiller wouldn't be able to do it. He's capable of being very funny. But he ruined this When movie. he's doing, like, you know, comic character work. But then when he gets it into his head that he wants to be like a... Well, so here's the inside story. ...sympathetic character. Here's the inside story. When I was at the 92nd Street Y, you might have to cut this out. When I was at the 92nd Street Y, I was trying to program a bar mitzvah for this movie. So that must have been... 20, for this movie? Must have been 2013. Where we were going to get together on the 13th anniversary of the release of Keeping the Faith and have a whole conversation about this movie. And we had gotten Stuart and Ed... But we couldn't get Ben. Would not we just could not get Ben. And eventually it never materialized. But we were in contact with Stuart Blumberg, who was a really uh, nice person and was very out for doing this event and we were trying to get Ed and we had no luck with Ben whatsoever. So I don't I don't know if that means anything at all. The event never materialized, but I was trying to put that event together. It would have been you know, a real Jewish geek fest on the Upper East Side. Probably what it would have been. All right. Well, I don't want to crap all over Ben Stiller. But let's just say what he's doing in this movie doesn't really work. So we're getting to the, I think, the stretch of this darn thing. So then, oh, there's been this thing the whole time that Jake's mother is on the outs with Jake's brother because Jake's brother married a non-Jewish woman, and now the mother won't talk to him. So this is in the background the whole time. It feels very... It's the worst part of the movie. On. It doesn't make any sense. And then she's crying with Jenna Elfman on the couch. Doesn't even fit. So then let's... Doesn't even fit. Right, but that's... Uh... And by the way, if she was upset... Just Jewish mother here. If she's upset that her son, if she's... Uh, set Shiva for her son who's well I don't think it's quite that who's now set well she won't talk about him Ben wants to repair the relationship Um, the son who's the rabbi having a relationship with him I mean that would be ten times worse you would think however then the mother ends up in the hospital there's a scene there there's the scene of the hospital where Essentially, she says, I was wrong. Um, you should follow your heart wherever it leads you, etc., etc. And that's that. 
And then uh, Ben Stiller. I feel bad for that other brother, by the way. You do. You do. <laughs> then Ben Stiller and 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 Ned Norton, they meet up and they have a conversation which doesn't really make much sense. Oh, and then Ben Stiller has the the Colnidre speech. Uh-huh. Which I, let's, I don't even want to talk about it. Let's just say it's, it's, it lasts two minutes, which already is ridiculous because, as you well know, the Colonel sermon is like the biggest sermon of the year. But we're thankful it lasts two we're minutes. Of this and movie. yes, the whole thing is oh, I'm so sorry. I had this relationship. I wasn't honest with you about it, and the relationship's over. But I should have been honest with my congregation about my life. It, and I've, I've thought so little about your spiritual life that I'm right. going to spend the most important night talking about my spiritual life. Yes. Right. It's yeah. awful. Very weird. Oh, and he did during the... Then I guess after, I forgot, after he, he gives her the brush off at the party, they then have this whole conversation and he says, oh, but my fate's important to me and so this won't work. We are never supposed to really take that seriously. Well, right? we see no, and then he puts on tefillin. There's like one montage where he lays tefillin on right after that, which caught me off guard because I didn't realize he did anything Jewish prior to then. Yeah, he doesn't. He, I mean, he wears a kippah every now and again, but other than that, there's really, and, you know, he, he calls out for people to have more Shabbat Shalominess. Uh, when they're in shul, but there's nothing, and there's no wisdom. There's n- the lack of Jewish wisdom in this movie is 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 shocking for a movie that's so based around rabbinics. But even putting that aside, <laughs> we're just not supposed. When he says, "Oh, this isn't going to work," because it's supposed to be a line, you don't believe him, yeah. and you know that even he doesn't believe it. Yeah. We're never supposed to take it seriously. Yeah. The way that we're supposed to take Brian's commitment seriously. Right? Because that's the way it's written and that's the way that it's performed. Right? Because Catholics believe in God and Jews don't. Because it's real. Because it's a real faith. And there is definitely more honor given to the vow taken by the priest than to the commitment taken by the rabbi. But we're not even told what that commitment is supposed to be. That's not even... It's Have a never, Jewish family? Yeah, but that's never... He says it's hard to find it. It's hard to get promoted to the senior job without a family. Yes, so the only obstacles in his way are his mother's disapproval and the disapproval of the congregation. his congregation. That's right. Right? There's nothing else. He never at any point says, well, look, it's really important to me and part of the plan for my life to be able to raise a Jewish family. Never says that. No, and in fact, the only way he expresses his affinity for Judaism is with the baseball cards, the rabbi baseball cards. Got it, got it, got it. It's like, that's it. That's the only thing he cares about Judaism is collecting rabbi baseball cards. It's not great. It's pretty shallow as the word very very shallow and there was i really wish that there was a movie there that took it seriously that that well that actually had some real tension there 
you know, with Brian as well, because he just also is let off the hook completely because he goes to her and he says, well, no, Jenna Elfman lets him off the hook because she says she's not interested. It would have been a very interesting movie if she were like, oh, well, Jake now, that's over with him. And hmm, here's this other guy that I was actually more into. Well, maybe this could work. Now that might be that might have been interesting. And then, and then Jake actually gets interested once Brian gets with Jenna. That that's, was maybe an interesting movie. There, that's right, right, where the priest has to actually wrestle with his commitment to the priesthood, right? And maybe the rabbi actually has to wrestle with his commitment to Judaism, which doesn't seem to exist, right? The only thing he's committed to is his career not really he's, i mean he's sorta the title he likes having the gig it's so weird it's so weird so then basically the mother lets him off the you know when the mother says oh i don't care and when he tells his congregation you know well he doesn't actually forget that so then the end of the movie is they're walking down the street ben stiller and Ed norton and Ed Norton gives this sort of speech about you have to follow your heart and know she's wonderful and how could you possibly let her go because she's the greatest and if something's there, you have to grab it. And I guess Ben Stiller has an epiphany and then runs to her. Oh, in that stupid street corner. There's, uh. Uh, there's the, he goes up to the, he can't get in the building because he's got this, there's been this sort of running gag with this antagonistic relationship he has with the doorman, um, oh, right? yeah. T-bone, T-bone, the door, this huge, uh, um, and then the door. guy who's doing and, something weird with his secretary and the and the yeah. window across the way. And so again, so much stuff we didn't even talk about because it's so <laughs> meaningless. But basically, what ends up happening is he, and this is another nice thing, is that you don't have to see them together when they get together. This is actually a good choice. That he ends up in the another building in the office building across the street, and has to call her on the phone because she's in this office party and whatever it doesn't matter. Uh, so he ends up calling her from the office building across the street to tell her that he loves her and then blah 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 blah. It's actually I think works better than if they actually had to be face-to-face because as we have established, when they are together face-to-face, you just don't buy it, right? And that's sort of the end of the movie. Oh, and then there's a last scene. They're in the karaoke senior center, whatever, and everybody's dancing. Do you know how much the rent for that space would be in Manhattan? How much is he charging for admission into the senior center karaoke? Because that place is not going to be open for very much longer. It's it's so, it's yeah. Um, all right, so I have some notes here now. Do it. Of random thoughts. Let's hear it. A lot of which we've talked about. One thing that occurred to me though, when we were talking about the casting, is it's a shame there was a previous generation where there were tons of Jewish actors, right? Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould, George Siegel, uh, Alan Arkin. Peter Falk. I mean, if this was movie was made 30 years earlier, right? You, if you had Elliot Gould, Dustin Hoffman in that role, or Dustin Hoffman, right? And um, I don't know who would you put. Oh my God! Who would you put in the Ed Norton role? Um, 
Uh, anybody. Uh, Robert Redford? Nah, he was too, he was too highbrow, probably, for a movie. Um, too good-looking. And too good-looking, probably, for a movie like that. But I don't know. It was just a shame that it was made at this time where you couldn't... John Voight. Yeah, yeah, sure. John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. That would be crazy! Oh, wait, that's... That'd be kind of a calm down. Uh, yeah, maybe if they did that before midnight uh, cowboy. <laughs> I'm walking here. Yeah, that would have been weird. So that was just one thought I had. Also, I did want to talk about rom coms for a minute. Given that this is clearly true. Well, it's also one. so nineties. It's so nineties it's painful. Like I can't see this movie without 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 thinking of the Upper West Side in the nineties. And like all of those Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, all those Tom Hanks movies. Like all of those. It was this weird era where there was just so many of these films and so many of them did well. And you did have these great actors and actresses who could just, you had Tom Hanks and you had Meg Ryan and you had Julia Roberts and you had Hugh Grant who was just born to play these roles. Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey, right? You had these performers who just made these movies work. You had some good directors who were working in the genre. You had Rob Reiner made, I think, two of the best. Um, actually, Rob Reiner, this is my theory, he makes the last, uh, or one of the last great teen comedies, which is what was in the 80s, right? You, the 90s, you did have these sort of, you know, adult romantic, classic rom-coms. In the 80s, it was all teen coms, teen Romantic comedies was for teenagers, right? You had all those John Hughes movies, right? And you had, in 87, The Bridge. When Harry Met Sally. Uh, yeah, 87. That's got to be The Bridge. When Harry Met Sally, it's got to be the whole genre maker, no? Uh, yeah, that's late 80s, yes. Is the, that's is, the whole genre maker. That, Everyone follows that, no? I mean, the whole New York thing? I don't know. Yeah, so in the 80s, Rob Reiner does this short thing. That's actually his first film. I never saw. I think. Oh, no, after Spinal Tap, he does um, the Sure Thing, which is John Cusack and oh, what's her name? I don't think uh, Daphne Zuniga. I don't know what else she Spaceballs. did. Spaceballs. Yes, you're right. Was that the Sure Thing? Yeah, it was. That was Daphne Zuniga. Uh, great movie. Great movie. I mean, just really good sort of teen romantic comedy, but starting to get less teeny. And then yes, with and then uh, when Harry Met Sally is is the first of the a lot of a lot is like this is it now this is what well, this is going to be some movies are sex made. and love on in film from now until into the early two thousands was all these kinds of movies and then that was over thankfully I think nine eleven might have killed it. This is my theory. Maybe. It um, killed a lot of things. It killed a lot of things. But it killed that sort of lightness of mood, I think, that you need. Right? Because in 2000... There's no way you can make a movie about a priest and a rabbi after nine eleven like this. You can't do that, no. But also, like, these movies, just there's this whole mood of, like, everything is great all the time. Right? New York, anywhere in the United States, like, we've won. We have, we have won. It's the end of history. Everything is great, and let's just kick back. <laughs> watch, 
you know, people fall in love on screen with no stakes, really. You know, it's, it, look, when you frame it like that, it's almost like the 90s or the 50s. This time in where, you know, the 1950s movies, if you just think about it. Like, well, that was a lot of the sort of melodrama. Well, the 60s, you had all the sort of Doris Day, right? Those kinds well, of... Well, I'm that's thinking of Donna Reed. Were. I'm thinking yeah, of... Yeah, same like, character. Right. Right. And so that was replicated in the 90s in a certain way. A little different. Yeah. There were these, it's weird. It's like a sine wave. These things... Uh, so in the 60s, you did have those movies. In the 40s, Screwball, right, was the romantic comedy genre that was the strongest, was the Screwball comedy, right? Which you had for like, I don't know, 10 years, maybe. And then that was over. And then in the 50s, I don't know if you had a ton of romantic comedies, but in the 60s, you had all, you know, Doris Day and Rock Hudson and all that, you know, Pillow Talk and all, all, all that stuff. And then the 70s, I don't think you really had much. Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, no, because the 70s was sort of a dark yeah, sure. period, right? And then in the 80s, you get all the teen comedies. Mm-hmm. And then in the 90s, into the early 2000s, you get... When is Boys Don't Cry? I wonder if that breaks the genre. Oh, I don't know. There are probably a lot of things, but it clearly dies, right? And then you get Apatow, basically. Yes, man boys. You get all that. You get all the that stupid stuff, man boys, right? You get the forty-year-old virgin. Is, is what early two thousands, mid two thousands, somewhere around then, and then, and then that's it. And now, sex basically doesn't happen in mainstream movies anymore right now it's all comic book movies and and you know maybe there's some smaller stuff but there's no sex that's really in in movies anymore it's it's just it's sort of sad um oh well i want to talk about judaism there's a lot of judaism in this film. <laughs> a little bit right yeah. But so as you said, it's not really... He falls asleep while he pays... Sats, right? He faints at the bris. Rabbi faints at the bris, by the way. Not a good thing for a rabbi fainting at a bris. Also a cliche. Yeah, sure, slapstick. I did enjoy Ed Norton sort of futzing uh, oh, yeah. with the censor. And then jumping and, in the water. And uh, not knowing what to do with it in the smoke going everywhere. Ed Norton. Physical actor. He could do comedy. Absolutely. Right? He's funny. Absolutely. In the film when he's given a chance. To be he's funny. also a good buddy actor. I mean, right around that same time Rounders came out. He's just a good actor. He's just, I mean, he's it, just really good. And he elevates that movie too, Rounders, you know? Part of our conceit here, or at least one I thought about, yeah. but I don't know if it's really happening or not, is that we would try to read movies sort of as if they were Jewish texts. And I think in many Jewish texts, there are parts that we wish weren't there. Very good. Right? That's right. And so I think that's definitely true in this movie. There were parts of this movie that I just, I mean, the whole Lisa Edelstein. Well, I'm thinking about that scene. too. I wish I just I'm wish thinking about that. It's very Seinfeldian. You know? It seems like there was a Seinfeld influence here because there are parts of that, you know. She must have shown up in Seinfeld. Itself. She must have shown she up in Seinfeld. They, they go out to dinner at Carmine's. I mean, it's just so Upper West side that I can't help but imagine that when this was being made, there's like some Seinfeld humor thrown in there and Lisa Edelson got caught up in the, in the midst of that. I like Ron Rifkin. 
you know. Uh, yeah, I wish there was more to say on this movie. It's like it's hard. Well, we to, said plenty. I mean, we did say that. Yeah, we we've have, actually we been talking for a long time, but not too much theology, unfortunately, because it wasn't there. There's not. It's not there. It, it, the Catholic theology is kind of there in terms of the celibacy thing. It's addressed, but why he can't marry this uh, woman is ignored entirely. Yes, and we're all supposed to take her point of view of, well, you have to give it a chance. That's right. You're just being you're just being racist by not dating me. And his response is, that's just the way it is. There's no reason why. No. Oh, but then, wait, I mean, have to mention, so there's another not even running gag, but thing uh, planted that she's taking classes. And at some point, he's like, oh, what are these classes you're taking? And she's... That's at the very end. And at the very end, it turns out, of course, which, of course, we knew because it was telegraphed from a thousand miles away, that she's taking classes with, uh, with Eli Wallach. She's taking some kind of Judaism classes. And then I guess we're supposed to think like, oh, okay, well, maybe that could, maybe this could work out. I can't tell you how much damage this has caused to couples that have come to me over the past 20 years. This movie? Yes. Seriously? Well, just the idea. It's just, oh, everything will be fine if the non-Jewish person just takes the classes and converts. And and the Jewish male partner doesn't have to worry about anything so long as the female partner takes the classes. I mean, it does, it does lead to some unfortunate... Well, we're not even we're not even given to believe in the movie that she's even gotten that far. <laughs> no. Right? No. Yeah. We're not we're not given in the movie that he's even gotten that far. <laughs> no, that whole relationship just yeah, it doesn't work. Okay, so here's the categories. And they never mentioned hold on. Okay. Is there a single biblical character mentioned in the whole movie? Well, during his sort of spiels in synagogue. What? Who? He mentions Who? Doesn't he mention... No! Abraham? No! There are no biblical characters mentioned. Except Jesus. Uh, I don't think there's any biblical characters. And they do reference God, but it's always in a joke. Right? right? Barely. It's always, oh, we're in the big man's house. And, yeah, it's it's always sort of jokey. And they don't... They're not allowed to take it seriously. The movie doesn't allow them to take it seriously. Brian kind of is allowed to, because because there's something real at stake. Well, because the line is so clear, right? It's like you, you're, you're in or out. You're in or out. You can have sex or you can have sex. And if you do, well, although frankly, let's be honest, a lot of priests, from what I understand, have have done so. It's not like it. It's not like it doesn't happen ever. They're human right. beings. It would have been nice if it would have been interesting if Mulish Foreman had said, "Well, you know what? Actually, this happens. There was this one time where it happened. That would have been interesting. The movie's not allowed to be that interesting. It is not. Um, Your I mean, categories. Okay, here are my categories. Kind of, I, I really wish I got to see more of Mulish Foreman acting in things. He was he was great. Okay. Category number one. How Jewish is this movie? On a scale from one to ten, where one is the Green Berets, and ten <laughs> is a serious man. Uh, how how Jewish is this movie? And I'm using uh, sort of the rubric of I'm using Lenny Bruce's rubric of some things are Jewish and some things are going. About an eight. It's about an eight. I would agree. I think this is actually a very Jewish 
movie. Uh, yeah. Overwhelmingly. So. Overwhelmingly. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I would give it. Yeah, probably a seven or an eight. Yeah. I'm going with an eight because it's just it's it, it reeks Jewish off of so many. I mean, every scene sort of reeks Jewish, either, either for a laugh or for some sort well, of it's been and Upper West Side. Right, it's Upper West Side. Thing. It's the whole milieu. The whole thing. No, even though it's not a Jewish. There's every character. Jewish joke oh, in the yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, at least four out of six of the producers on this movie are Jewish. It's yeah. Okay. Um, I did have a kind of go Jewish geography. I already did it. We already did it, yeah. right? With BJ and... and yeah, and I tried to put together the bar mitzvah, yeah. Okay. So we played Jewish geography with a film. Most Jewish moment. Well, I have it. I mean, I've been... Uh, most... <laughs> okay. So the one line that I quoted to my wife as we were watching the movie again was when they're playing the basketball scene and... And Ben Stiller says to Ed Norton, I have to stop playing basketball against those guys from Jewish Theological Seminary because it really lowers the bar. Uh, and I, that I thought, that's, that's one line that sticks with me as, a, as, a, as someone who was ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Uh, it would lower the bar to play me in basketball. Uh, that, um, that sticks out to me. But I don't know if I'd call it the most Jewish. I'd call it the most inside baseball joke. Um, most Jewish moment? You got one? You know, it's hard because I don't think there's... They don't like candles at any point. Yeah, they do. When? And Bancroft does. Oh, she does. She That's does. Right. No, she does. There is Jewish prayer in this movie. There's Jewish yes. music. She lights the candles over the Shabbos. That's right. She does the bracha over the Shabbos candles. That's yes, right. Yes, she does. So that's it. That's the most that Jewish. That's probably either that or the Kol Nidre sermon at the end. But that's not Jewish. That turns out not to be Jewish at all. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Um, I think maybe the most Jewish movement is just the the maybe even just the shot you get of like the the synagogue board in <laughs> that room. Like, oh yeah, okay. I, I, I sort of buy that. Okay, so here's the the final question. Yes. If we were creating a canon... Yes, this uh, wouldn't be in it. Uh, this wouldn't, right? No, it's not a question. No, no. Well, you don't need it. What, what does no. it serve? Well, I mean, it's a canon of what? What's, what? Canon, if we are treating movies like Jewish texts, right? There are some texts that are in the canon, and some that are... I don't know, is there a Jewish word for the stuff that's not in the canon? Apocrypha. That's not a Jewish word, though, right? That's a... Greek? it's Greek and therefore I always thought sort of Christian um, there's no real Jewish equivalent right so you're either in or you're out um, there's the Bible and then there's everything else so yes if we were well, if we're at Yavna and we're deciding which texts go in does Job go in does Ecclesiastes exactly. go in does Job's he, in Hebrews go in and and, uh, and, yes yeah okay and we're putting now together. I'm going to keep this movie out no, I don't, movie I don't does not deserve to be in the canon <laughs> you know as many times as I might have watched this with my rabbinical student classmates uh, thinking we were, could be cool like Ben Stiller I, I don't think it's 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 going to make it into the canon unfortunately no, I don't think so either. Uh, I think we're done. All right, well, this was fun. With this film. I this like was it. fun. Uh, I'm glad we chose a, a not great movie to begin with. It made it more enjoyable. 
It would have been, if the first one we did was all serious and theological, I think it would have set us off on a bad tone. Yeah, maybe maybe next time we can find something that we could recommend to people <laughs> that they should really go out and watch. You could do worse. You could watch. This is a very light movie. If you and your partner want to watch something that's super light, that you don't have to be invested in, that's a little bit Jewish, that has some famous people in it, you could do a lot worse than this movie. You could do a lot worse. All right. Well, I've been Ben Shin. Rabbi Danny. And this has been The Jewish Frame. We'll see you again soon.